Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Terry Glavin. Terry is an author. He's also a senior fellow at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and he's also a journalist, and he has columns in the Ottawa Citizen and National Post, and is a contributing editor for McLean's. And he's recently just started a substack called The Real Story. Hey Terry, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, when I first reached out to you, I was actually hoping to talk about, you know, I'd mentioned talking about the trucker convoy, the emergency act, and like the coverage of all that. And I'd still like to, but I guess, you know, the elephant in the room is what's going on in Ukraine right now. Yeah, that's been, that's been occupying my every waking hour. And I've had quite a few of those for some days now, but it is kind of ironic. I think that, uh, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau appears to have invoked the emergencies act in Canada because the police didn't use the powers available to them under the criminal code to commandeer tow trucks in the city of Ottawa. And it wasn't until um, uh, the Russian army had already begun a full-scale invasion of Ukraine that the president of Ukraine invoked the Emergencies Act there. So, and I get a kick out of it. You know, well, I don't know if Ukraine's ready for NATO. I think they're ready for NATO. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I don't want to say I know the you know inside workings of NATO, but you know, I was on NATO bases from 2002 till the end of 2013. And, you know, they had Bosnia. And I realize Ukraine's a lot, you know, it's like right on the border with Russia, but I mean, you know, so are some of the Scandinavian countries and they're in, they're in NATO. Like it's just, yeah, it's it's a it's a tragedy, and it's um, it's a farce at the same time. Uh, that uh, it was really funny, you know, when the debate was going on in the House of Commons. I was saying, "Gosh, you know, wouldn't it be fun if uh, Jagmeet Singh pulled the pin?" Figured, okay, now's my moment. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the pin. And people would say, oh, that would be just crazy. Can you imagine after everything we've been through to suddenly be plunged into a federal election? I said, well, look, you know, in the absence of something like this, you know, we're going to be undergoing and suffering endorphin withdrawal for some time. Well, well but, no, no, no worry about that now. Yeah. Well, my whole thing with, with, the, with the act was when they were voting on it, because there was you know, a couple of liberal MPs who said, oh, we don't agree with it, but we want to we're going to, we don't want to cause a no confidence vote. I'm like, but if you don't agree with that act and you don't think Trudeau had any right to invoke it, I mean, that should be cause for a, you know, a non-confidence motion. Well, yeah, it should be. Uh, I mean, obviously the, the two MPs involved, um, one was a fellow from Toronto, nice man, liberal, mm -hmm. whose name escapes me. I think was light on the other one. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if you don't have confidence in your own government and you say so, um, then you can either vote your conscience um, or you can say, well, I don't have confidence in my government, but if I voted against this motion, the government would fall I'd, or I'd be kicked out of my caucus um, uh, and that's that. Um, 
it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who go into public life and, and, and uh, run for office and endure what one has to endure just by living in Ottawa for a lot of the year. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I'm trying to be nice here, but uh, it's, no, I don't think any of the political parties in Ottawa really covered themselves in glory oh, through no. this period. Um, and I mean, it's just, you know, as much as I want to be nice and fair and balanced and even-handed, I'm, I'm afraid that we're just an unserious country. We are an uns. We're a. Pl it's it's almost like we're a pretend country. <laughs> yeah. What I mean, okay, like my whole thing with the with the protest and all that was, I looked at it and I was like, okay, this is how I've reacted over the last two years, starting with the blockades by the First Nations. Yeah, and then you know, going all the way down, coming up to the truckers' protest, and I was like, okay, the First Nations thing—that's a little bit more complicated. And I don't—I'm not even going to begin to say I understand what went on with the, uh, you know, like the original protest with like the way Whitson, uh, yeah. yeah, like that was a whole like internal power thing as well. I like, I don't even know enough about that to like, but the blockades on the mail, main railway lines—I was opposed to that. I'm like, you know, I didn't want emergency actors like police should go in and get rid of those blockades blocking yeah. the railways and it was the same thing okay i don't think they should be blockading the borders i thought you know like that was wrong i'm like i was against that and it was the same thing with you're in ottawa go to parliament hill the people you have a beef with are the is the government don't go into residential neighborhoods and start honking yeah. your horns and and stuff like that like so that was my take on that i'm like you have a, go protest that's your right do what you want you know, to within a limit, but yeah, I, I was opposed to that with those blockades. I thought that was wrong. And I was like trying to be consistent with how I'd been over the last couple of years in the protests that had happened across the country. And I was like, like, like Trudeau went from hiding to, okay, I'm going to go to the other extreme and yeah. there's nothing in between. Yeah. I think you've got a good point there. And I think you're probably reflecting a lot of Canadian opinion. Mm. Um, and I think one of the reasons why, these conversations are often so difficult to have. And thank you very much for engaging in this with me is there's a lot of sort of conflation going on. Um, the, the protests in Ottawa, for instance, are an example of this uh, in the way we are, you know, much of the media uh, and uh, certainly the Trudeau government was talking about what was going on. Um, I think a lot of the confusion and the mayhem occurred because of the conflation of, of protest with criminal activity. And the term illegal protest started to make the rounds. There's no such thing. You know, if you block a road deliberately, you're violating, in the city of Ottawa, you're violating municipal bylaws about blocking a road. If you light a fire in the city court, a bonfire, and you're having, you know, beers and having a big party, fair play to you, but actually you're not allowed to light a fire in downtown Ottawa. Um, there's also, I think, a convention in Canada, which is perfectly reasonable, that the police are reluctant to move on a protest because charter rights uh, uh, are, are inherent rights regardless of what the charter might say. 
uh, are include rights to free speech and expression and protest and dissent and so on. And so it's it's the cops usually would prefer to get a court order first. But um, you know, if you're parking a truck for days on end uh, and blocking traffic, um, I don't know why we need the army. Quite frankly, I don't know why we needed uh, in an extra eighteen hundred police uh, from the OPP to come in and help the Ottawa police wander around uh, putting parking tickets underneath uh, windshield wipers on on trucks. If if it's illegal, that's that's it, sorry. Um, Similarly, I mean, it really did at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the, the border blockades, they were really clearly, obviously, unambiguously illegal. Uh, you didn't actually need the uh, the successor to the War Measures Act to deal with that. Uh, there was a lot the federal government could have done to come to the assistance of the Crown and Right of the province of Ontario, the Crown and Right of the province of Alberta. Um, the It's against the law to do it. That's the thing. And um, the conflation of protests with illegality is an extremely bad thing to do in a liberal yeah. democracy. And similarly, I just want to touch on the indigenous thing. What we've done there too, I think we were doing this uh, definitely with the railroad blockades, where we were conflating Aboriginal rights with an imaginary right of any indigenous person or person who claimed to be an indigenous person to blockade a railway anywhere in the country. Um, In British Columbia, it's complicated because most of the province and most of the provincial land mass is uh, on what is fashionable to describe nowadays as unceded traditional territory. There were no treaties. And so there's a lot of law in British Columbia that has actually gone all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and has set uh, Canadian law um, on Aboriginal rights out of British Columbia, the Chilcotin case, the, uh, the Delgamook case, in the, which was the Gixan and Soatin, which makes it quite plain that Indigenous people have a right to, to, the, to title ownership of their territory and they have the, the right to develop the resources of that territory, uh, to mine, to log, um, that those rights can be exercised in a contemporary manner, um, but they're not absolute. And among the things that uh, are uh, limitations on that right are le- valid legislative objectives like mining, like forestry, like the settlement of foreign populations, uh, all that kind of thing. So it's complicated. Um, and the people who were protesting and shutting down blockades and saying, well, it's, you know, we can do this because we're indigenous somewhere in, in Saskatoon or, or in, 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 in the, you know, Eastern Canada and the Maritimes or in Ontario, I'm sorry, you actually, that's not how it works. And it was a very interesting case in Ottawa during the truckers blockade where, uh, a, a kind of a, some kind of a shack had been constructed on a street. And the Ottawa police moved in to get the shack out of the way. 
And uh, somebody said that, uh, well, you can't do that because this, was, this is an indigenous shack. And so <laughs> they stopped. <laughs> and then they had to go and check with the, uh, uh, I don't know, I can't remember who it is that holds title to uh, Parliament Hill or the precinct. Um, but they had to go and check with the local First Nation to see whether it was true or not before they were willing to go in and take the shackle. I mean, this is crazy. And, and, and it's actually, you know, I'm a, I'm a real hardliner, actually, when it comes to Aboriginal rights. Um, real hardliner. The difficulty you've got up in the Wet'suwet'en country is it's all very well and good, and it's a very true thing just to, to notice that, you know, that pipeline is supported by pretty well every single First Nation along that, the route of the pipeline in band council resolutions and so on. And the government and the company was negotiating with those band councils uh, to, to acquire those, that, that consent. But the difficulty is though, those, those band councils don't, aren't vested with the Aboriginal rights entitled to the land. Um, and so all along they were kind of negotiating with the wrong people that doesn't put the Wet'suwet'en blockaders on the uh, Maurice River service road in the right, however, because what they're doing is they're interfering in the rights of Indigenous people downstream of them who want to see the pipeline and would like the jobs, thank you very much, and uh, interfering in the, the, the right of Indigenous peoples upstream of them as well to exercise their Aboriginal rights. So it's this kind of conflation that bothers me. Um, just because you may claim some sort of ancestry to uh, an indigenous community doesn't mean that you're vested with any particular suite of Aboriginal rights or Aboriginal title. You know, uh, the right wing used to do this, and you know, it's our rights based on race, uh, you know, judge made law and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know what? A Chilcotin person has no Aboriginal right whatsoever to hunt, fish, anything in Gwagilth territory. And an Anishinaabe has absolutely no Aboriginal right to hunt, fish, or anything else in, in, uh, in Stony territory. You know, it's complicated. And, you know, if people aren't willing to sort of embrace this complexity, try to be accurate and precise in the way we describe what's going on, uh, make a clear distinction between a protest and lawbreaking and hooliganism, then you're going to get some crazy thing like the War Measures Act. <laughs> but I mean, you know, look, like, thank you for going through that, especially with like what was going on with like, uh, you know, in BC with the pipeline and all that, because like I said, I, I, I'd read about it when it was happening and, you know, I was like, okay, it makes, I understand what's going on there as opposed to what's going on the railways. But yeah, it was just <clears throat> like, at least the government negotiated with them. Like there was no negotiation or anything with these guys. Like, like again, just from reading, um, I'm going to forget her name. Uh, she's the national post now, Rupa something. Rupa, yeah. yeah. And even like some of the stuff that John K did. And then like the, the podcast that uh, Quillette has, some of these people had some really crazy ideas or really my only, I don't, I don't agree with the mandates. I don't agree with that. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm with them on that. But the rest of it is just like, they have a right to protest. And it was just yeah. like everyone else. It's like, 
you know, Black Lives Matter had a right to protest, but there was a lot more damage done. Yeah. You know, in Black Lives Matter protests, which some of them, like in two nights in Montreal, I think we had riots, then was done at the truckers. It was just... And yeah, I say, no, I, I, can see, I can see how people are, are uh, you know, I, I think, you know, increasingly angry with the government and with government generally. Yeah, but with me, it's the hypocrisy. Like, yeah, I, I like I got into okay. So I came back to Canada in 2014. I my first thing was I got called a white supremacist because I was criticizing Islam, and I'm like, okay, and you don't have a particularly pale complexion, exactly. And I was like, okay, where is this coming from? And then I just started seeing more and more of it. And there was like I just looked into some of these cases, and there was. The, there was a she was a First Nations woman. I want to say in Calgary, but I'm like I read this back in about 2014 or 15, so I'm gonna get some of this wrong. I'm pretty sure she was holding up a sign or something like that, saying, "You know, white men must die, or I want to kill white men," and it wasn't found to be a hate crime. I'm like, okay, but if that yeah. was a white person holding up a sign about any other race, that's a hate crime. There was a priest in Quebec. From the pulpit, he went on. A, he was a Catholic priest. He went on a tirade about homosexuality, and then he got called up for hate speech. And he was he was given six years where he couldn't speak in public. I'm like, well, okay, I disagree with him. I think he's all wrong, but it's a priest from a pulpit, you know, like the like like those kind of hypocrisies. I've just seen it, and yeah, and like the last couple of years of. Okay, even take the Nazi flags, like the, the swastikas and all that. The protests in the pro-Palestinian protests in 2021, you know, I think it was the Toronto Star. Like there was there was a whole bunch of swastikas at those protests. There was like Israeli flags with the Star yeah. of David replaced with a swastika. They're like, oh, this is a good way to start dialogue. And I think that was a Toronto Star. I could be completely wrong about that, but there were comments like that. And here you had a few yahoos with swastikas, and I don't agree with the swastika or anything, but you know, they were cat like the pretty much the truckers threw them out and they just, just yeah okay they're all Nazis they're all racist like it was it was insane like the, the just the the different takes on it yeah Sorry, just, similarly you know as I was saying I mean I I'm 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 pretty hard line about Nazis too yeah. you know I think punching punching Nazis is just fine the difficulty is you know gotta be careful about that because just because somebody is described as a Nazi um, yeah doesn't give anyone a right to punch him, right? And the the, the the bit of the bit about the Nazi flags, I think. Um, you know, as far as I can tell, there was only one Nazi flag. There was a guy, there was at least okay, there was a guy with an upside down Canadian flag and had swastikas in the corners of it. And there was one guy with a flag. Yeah, were they side. swastikas or were they SS symbols? I if I think it was swastikas in the okay. or, or, or at least two of the Might corners, that's one. Yeah, my point was that, you know, in, in that case, I don't know that it was clear whether he was sort of, you know, uh, celebrating Nazism as a Canadian or whether he was saying this government is so bad, they're like the Nazis. Yeah. So apart from that, an actual Nazi flag, I think the only, I, I, as far as I am aware, and I've really looked for this, there was actually only one. And it was, I think, on the first day, or the second day of the mm -hmm. protest. And it, there were two photographs of it. 
and and then it was gone. And I was told, and I really wish I could get this person on the record, uh, by a woman in Montreal, that he was basically hustled out of there and told, "You better get the hell out of here." Um, and uh, and I mean, there's no question. There's a whole bunch of yahoos that uh, you know in Ottawa. But at the same time, there were a whole bunch of, you know, it's basically the trailer park boys, you know. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, so I, and, and you're right. I mean, there's been a number of occasions over the past 20 years where hammers and sickles have been flown openly and, you know, yeah. NDP M M MPs have marched in parade, anti-war, so-called anti-war parades with uh with with uh, you know the hammer and sickle people carrying the hammer and sickle so what i think what that was all about was that trudeau what he does is he sort of his way of he's, he's really not a party leader. he's more of a mascot and he sort of became a canadian mascot you know um the you know in 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 a in the view of a lot of a lot of canadians certainly a lot of americans i mean the rolling stone put him on the cover He's sort of like the prototypical, perfect Canadian, you know, the nice guy with the tousled hair. Yeah. You know, he's all very uh, handsome and all that sort of thing and says all the right things and has all the right uh, viewpoints and standpoints and attitudes and takes a knee and all that kind of stuff and simply speaks an entirely different language than a, a significant proportion body of Canadian opinion on it. When I say Canadians are starting to speak two mutually unintelligible languages, I don't mean English and French. Mm. And if you look at the um, Statistics Canada data, what you find is something really interesting. I noticed this about four or five years ago. Uh, I did a big, big piece for Maclean's when the whole Black Lives Matter phenomenon first emerged. And it was a distinctly and uniquely American phenomenon. And yet we sort of adopted it in Canada and took on all of its attributes. And the paradox there was that we, it, it was the language we took on, you know, like BIPOC, you know, yeah. uh, and, and e even, even people of color just by itself. This is not Canadian terminology. This is American terminology. We have our own awkward terminology, visible minority and, a, and not a visible minority. And in, you know, in that class of people who are altogether not indigenous people. So it's equally awkward. But what, I, what was really interesting is that in all the polling, I work with, work with a guy named Angus McAllister, who sounds very, very Scottish, but in fact, he's Japanese. And he's, he's a pollster. And what, what he just, and, and we, were, we were looking back through polling data, going through, through the years, and the interesting thing is that the overwhelming majority of people in Canada who would ordinarily be described as not a visible minority, which is the term for quote unquote white people, no. never, never identified as white. White people, people who we now call white people in Canada, never identified as white people. So even white people is kind of an identity silo that has been imposed on a whole bunch of people. I certainly never identified with people. I'm Irish. I come from an immigrant family, Irish Catholic. And it was a great book written a few years ago called How the Irish Became White. 
I mean, my God, we're so white that most white people think we're white, right? Um, so, you know, there, there is this, in Canada, there is a, you know, demographically what statistics Canada will show is that pretty well, you know, one of the most marginalized communities in Canada, racial gender communities in Canada, is rural white males. You know, they basically got prospects that are not much better, better than urban black males. And a lot of, uh, you know, East Asian, I guess it is, uh, uh, women of color, immigrant women of color, are actually doing fabulously in Canada yeah. compared to, you know, a whole bunch of other categories. So um, I think what we saw in Ottawa was to a great extent a kind of inarticulate, inchoate revolt of the rural white male. And of course they weren't all rural, they weren't all white, yeah. but I think that was the core of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you've read um, Butcha Ungar Sargon's book, Bad News. Um, no, I know her though. Yeah. And I, read the book. I mean, okay, this is, I, I didn't make quite exactly the same point, but like, I think it's more widespread than just journalism, but she's talking about how you know, the left left wing media went from a class struggle to a race struggle, and you know they yes. left the working class behind, and it just all shifted towards race. And it comes down to how they're being educated. They are holding. You know, I agree with John McWhorter when he calls you know like critical race theory, like whatever wokeness, whatever you want to call it, like when he considers that a religion. I agree with him. It, it acts quite a bit like a religion and so they are holding that language they speak in that jargon that's how they're taught and it's been going on for you know people being graduating with that stuff for 25 years now and that's kind of where yeah the press, has, press has gotten and it's just i agree they i don't think the press can relate to a truck driver a mechanic you know tradesperson like yeah uh, you know these people like whatever these people like if you know, just look at the oil and gas industry like how that's being vilified yeah and you know yeah so i can get their frustration and i can get why they're mad and i can get why they were upset with the media like well certain media like you know <coughs> i don't agree with the spitting on them and things like that if they're yelling stuff at them that's whatever i guess that's all right but you know like within reason i guess that too um but yeah it just but i want to just go on with this because i think this is kind of important for like what's going on in ukraine as well is the coverage of the protest for the truckers like you know you talked about that a little bit and we tend to talk around it but if you looked at it based on people who actually gone and spoken to the the protesters and gone and spoken to, because I mean, they weren't all truckers, but they'd actually gone in on ground and spoken to them and got information as opposed to people sitting at a news desk somewhere. It was two different types of coverage. And when people can actually see the video coming out compared to what, you know, any network is saying, and I think the last two years have really hurt the media as well. It's like, how are you supposed to trust them? How are you supposed to trust yeah. when what they say does not match what you're seeing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm a journalist. How I've made my, my way through the world for most of my 
I'm, I'm just sorry. I was just going to interrupt you for a second. Like, I oh, ha- I have nothing against like individual journalists. I I think media as an institution is gotten rotten. But there's you know there's obviously you know there's, there's, there are good journalists. There are people getting good stories out there. So sorry, I didn't mean to like smear like all journalists. No, no, yeah. Pressure. Yeah, I think we have to be careful that we we don't. Uh, I mean, people will complain about the media, but what the hell is that, right? Uh, you know, let's be clear about what we're talking about here. Um, there's the legacy media, what's known as the legacy media, and this usually refers to private media, usually print media, but not always. And uh, there's a lot of diversity in um, in 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 the the workforce in legacy media. When it comes to institutions like the CBC, a whole bunch of other issues arise because you know there are there are vast sections of the CBC that speak that other language that I was referring to earlier, that most Canadians simply do not do not speak. And they used to be, and there still are, I want a big shout out to Ian Hanamansing, who does uh, cross-country checkup. Um, before Ian Hanamansing, it was um, Rex Murphy. And before Rex Murphy, it was, uh, oh God, Peter, gosh, Zosky, Peter Zosky. So, you know, there are institutions in the CBC that have actually bound this country together. So, you know, a fisherman in Newfoundland and a rancher in the Okanagan and a young woman in downtown Calgary, everybody's sort of part of the same conversation somehow. And it doesn't get out of control and it's moderated. Everybody's got something to say. But there is, I think, um, a kind of, and, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time over. And a lot of what I cover is essentially, usually, is, you know, international human rights, foreign policy, stuff like that. Um, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Um, uh, I wrote a book about Afghanistan called Come from the Shadows. And one of the things that was really interesting about Afghanistan was, was what you described. Um, it wasn't across the board in the media. You know, I think of reporters like Rosie DeMano from uh, the Toronto Star. She was amazingly great. But there was, the whole, from the very beginning, we spoke about Afghanistan in, an, in American language instead of Canadian language, if I could put it that way. And we got the story wrong almost from the very beginning. And I think some of the sort of bigger thinkers in in counterinsurgency and in military planning and so on in the United States and Australia too, uh, have made some interesting observations along these lines. My experience in Afghanistan was I I, I was outside the wire for most of the work that I did. Uh, I was down in Kandahar. I was up in way up north in Mazari Sharif, spent a lot of time in Kabul and Those are people who, in spite of everything that you might say, you know, the West or, you know, the white countries or whatever you might say have done to them. My my God, what the Russians did to that country is just unspeakable. Um, They are and were from the very outset in favor of the NATO intervention. Uh, They are the most studied people in Central Asia. Not once in, a, in, in the 17-year history, I think, of uh, Asia Foundation polling in Afghanistan after 
did support for the was support for the Taliban found to be any more than maybe eight or nine percent. And usually it was uh, the term was um, anti-government organizations, right? So it's not just the Taliban, but uh, you know, in a broader sort of. And I, I mean, I can understand how some people would have some sympathy for people who took up arms against, you know, uh, a rival uh, chief on the other side of a mountain who had exploited his relationship with the U.S. forces to accrue benefits to himself to the detriment of the other tribe and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is the overwhelming majority of people in Afghanistan and Afghan Canadians too, a lot of my friends in those early days were Afghan Canadians, were uh, in favor of the NATO intervention. And they were among the more articulate of them. They were people you would you might say of the left. They were in fact, some sometimes Marxists, uh, certainly liberals, intellectuals, poets, journalists, and they were all in favor of the intervention. But I talked to my white friends on the left and they are universally, almost universally opposed to the intervention. They had this idea of Afghanistan and I refer to it as absurdistan. The term is actually comes from back in the day before the Berlin Wall fell. The, uh, uh, I don't know whether it was Czechoslovakia, where it started, people would describe the, 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 Af the, the Central Asian countries that they were reading about in Pravda and, and TAS as absurdistan, because they knew it was all just rubbish, right? And I think, unfortunately, that's what we ended up doing in Canada too. Everything was backwards. Um, and, and so, you know, I remember being interviewed. I won't say who it was. It was a CBC interview. Um, um, and, you know, there were two of us on. One, one person was one of these people who were sort of anti-war polemicists of some sort. And, uh, and me. And uh, the polemicist, uh, the anti-war activist person, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then the, the host turned to me and said, well, and now for the pro-war side. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> like the yeah. reason I support the intervention is because I am against the war, right? Yeah. That was the whole point of the intervention. You talk to Afghans, they talk, when they talk about the war, they're talking about everything that happened before 9-1. When you talk to, to, to I'm going to say white people, you euphemistically, nothing wrong with white people. But if you talk to most white people, when they talk about the war in Afghanistan, they mean everything that happened after. Yeah, people, don't really upset, yeah. Yeah, people don't realize there was like 30 years of war before yeah, the U.S. went exactly. in. But okay, my, what I saw in Afghanistan, and like I, I, off and on, I spent almost seven years there. Um, wow. Good and I was, I was mainly, on, okay, I was on working on uh, military bases, but... So Kabul. Where were you, by the way? May I ask? Uh, okay, so I was Cap? based. I was basically made like based out of like I was in Camp Julian when it first opened. Right. Wow. So, so I was in Kabul, and then uh, I left, came back to Kabul. I was in Kandahar. I mean, I was, but most of my contracts I traveled all over. So I was in every part of that country. I helped build FOBs. I, I did. I worked in comms. So I held I set up comms for like you know like all of the bases. Like well, not all Good the man. bases, but yeah. But like when I got to Kabul in 2004, there were there's no power, there's no light, so you know the right. bases had to turn their lights off at night. Um, and until they, and when I left that first contract, 
I got there in March of 2004 and I left in November of 2005. Kabul was lit up. So, I mean, there was an actual good. And from what I saw, it was the cities like NATO, but in the countryside, not so much. Just because that's true in the south, yeah, yeah. And my take, like what I saw, and okay, now I heard this one story, and I, I I know in those places, like like you know whatever, it's just a rumor mill. But they they had offered uh, they'd offered farmers in the south money and money to last them through the winter and seeds for the next year if they burnt their poppy fields. The farmers said fine, because they were doing it to feed their families. They weren't sure. doing it expressly to, and this was, and this was around the time when Taliban insurgency, Al Qaeda, all of them were moving, were being pushed from the north, and they were coming to the south. It was right around 2006 when they were just being pushed further and further south. Because when I first got there, it was more of the hot stuff stuff was going up up in the north, and then they burnt all their crops. But the money didn't come, and then the seeds fell through for the next year, anyways. But when the money didn't come, they didn't have. A way to feed their families but all these like the insurgency and all that was moving south and they needed places to stay so they told the farmers well we'll take care of you if you put us up and so by nato backing out of their and again like i, I don't want to say this is gospel or whatever this is like something i'd heard but it, it kind of ties into like what i saw like before they were attacking u.s vehicles more than nato vehicles and after about 2000 end of 2006 beginning of 2007 and it's not that nato didn't get attacked but they were they would just go after nato vehicles like before anything that said isaf wasn't as an obvious as a target as anything that had just u.s colors on it Mm -hmm. yeah well that's the way it is i mean it's a really complicated country (laughs) you know it's uh some parts of it are almost stone age (laughs) some some parts of it are you know the heights of sort of persian civilization um, there's a great story about, gosh, I can't remember his name. He wrote a book about uh, about his experiences there as a journalist. He was he was moving through, I think it was Paktia, way down there, way up in the back of beyond, and uh, with a Kandak, you know, an Afghan army unit, uh, with a troop of American soldiers who were accompanying the, the Kandak. And they came into a remote valley and uh, the people in the valley thought they were, the white guys were Russians. They didn't even know that the Russians had left. They didn't know. But then, you know, you go into, I, you know, I remember Kabul, you know, um, um, my God. I mean, Kabul was pretty hopping, actually. You know? oh, yeah, there, was, there, was, there, was a, there were a few good restaurants. There was a, decent there was, was a good bar scene. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I remember, I remember, you know, I guess it's Thursday afternoons and everybody gets real happy because, you know, the next day is uh, the holy day and the weekend's coming and getting stuck in traffic and somebody turns up his radio really loud and everybody's dancing and uh, at an intersection and the, and the, and the music was Marilyn Manson's uh, personal Jesus. You know? <laughs> so it's a crazy place and they're wonderful people. And, uh, but yeah, no, the whole point of this little reminiscence was that um, there is something that happens with mass media and it's almost like mass hysteria. Um, there is something that is of, of deep concern to me 
it's one of the reasons why I've begun. I haven't sort of bailed from legacy media, struck out on Substack with some contrarian, you know, newsletter. Um, the, I, I started month, the newsletters. There's just so much happening in my beat. There's just not enough room. You know, I got to spread it around a little more. And, um, and I'm using the newsletter to explore some of these things that go under the radar. One of the things that goes under the radar is because it can't really happen effectively in mass media uh, unless you have sort of journalists interviewing journalists about journalism, which is really boring, um, is, is the sort of replacement of fact and story. Uh, you know, journalists are not metaphysicians. We're not philosophers. We're not supposed to be. We don't have to have some kind of sophisticated notion of what truth is. Uh, um, to a journalist, truth arises from facts. And there's a me methodology and a discipline built up over decades and decades and decades in the establishment of fact. And then there are other methods and traditions and disciplines that oblige fairness and completeness um, and balance and so on. And if you can work within those rules, and if you've got a lot of curiosity, you can, you're going to be a good journalist and you're going to, you're going to be doing a lot of public service journalism. But what's happened is, and I don't know, you know, the cause and effect lines run both ways here. You know, we've got to a point where more than 50% of Canadians, as you were saying, have developed a fairly deep distrust of the mass media, the news media. Um, at the same time, we've lost, what, something like 450 newsrooms in Canada over the last 12 years? Yep. Um, and so, you know, is, is one, is, is it happening? You know, why is it happening? So, uh, you know, it's so easy. What I, what I began to notice um, after a few years working for the dailies is there's nothing easier in the world than to get on the front page. Nothing easier. All you have to do, I mean, this is if it's not a particularly good newspaper, is to write something that upholds what you might call the narrative or a narrative. Um, and so narrative that, that's sort of already, you know, tire tracks or, or, or wheel tracks and a rutted road um, that, that's already there, right? If you can, if you can come along with a little vehicle and, and put those, put the wheels in that, in those, in that, in those rutted tracks, you'll be on the front page. You know, if you basically write a story that, uh, you know, affirms everybody's prejudices or bigotries or assumptions, uh, you'll be on the front page a lot in a bad newspaper. But a big, big, you know, a really important role of, of journalism, which used to be called the fourth estate, and there was a reason for this, and it was a significant and important institution in the functioning of democracy, um, is simple curiosity. Tell me a damn story, right? Tell me something I didn't know. That's, the, that's what news is. You didn't know it, it's news. News to me, you know, the expression. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, that's actually hard to do requires a lot of resources and skills, technical uh, expertise. Journalism was a trade and it became a profession and it became easy to basically just play with the narrative instead of tell a story. And one last thing, 
I think 911 was a really interesting moment in history. It was a moment in 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 our con subconscious. It kind of opened a nightmare drawer. People were terrified of Muslims after that. A lot of people. Um, and it was almost like a blunt trauma wound to the head. And I think a lot of people went crazy. I mean, there were very few media events like it in North American history. Uh, you know, the Kennedy assassination, the moon landing, that kind of thing as a media event. But what was interesting about 911 as a media event is that everybody had a, had a camera. Everybody, you know, it was just at the emergence of digital phones. Uh, it was at the emergent, you know, everyone had those little cameras, digital cameras. How many, you know, how many scenes of those planes going into the buildings, of people running down the streets of Manhattan, clouds of dust and smoke, um, thousands of them. And then, they, you know, they're distributed through digital technologies and the internet. And so all it would take is uh, a couple of kids in their parents' garage in Michigan somewhere to produce a documentary that only three or four years before, only an organization with the resources of CBS News, 60 Minutes, could have produced one of that sophistication. And yet the documentary is all about C. It was an inside job. Yeah. You know, it was, and, and so it's, uh, a lot of this is really about technology too, you know? Um, and the, diffu the diffusion of, of digital technology is meant just about anybody can be a journalist now or pretend that they're a journalist or act like a journalist or start up a website with a name that kind of had, maybe it's got news in it. Yeah. Um, and so all of those uh, traditions and disciplines and conventions, I grew up in the system, uh, the old guild system, six years a reporter uh, until you're, you know, you're an apprentice until you're a journeyman. And uh, that's all gone. Everybody can, anybody can be a journalist now. So it's, it's a very confusing time, I think, for people to be trying to figure stuff out. Uh, like, okay, you know, I agree with you that okay, me doing a podcast, it's, okay, I'm not saying it's journalism, but, but yeah, I don't need much to do this now. But again, I think, I still think the Academy has a big part to play in this. And it just, maybe it's, you know, I'm, I, I'm kind of stuck on this, but. But around 2000, like between 97 and 2000, when you, ha you had the first people graduating from like certain humanities degrees with that intersectional framework. And that's like where all that this new language and everything's coming from. And that's where it's, you could say it's narrative that matters. It's, you know, they're factual, but they're not truthful. Like they're taking the facts, you know, they're, they're making the facts fit the narrative instead of weaving a narrative around what the actual facts are like weaving a story yeah. around the actual facts they're making they taking those facts making it fit whatever they want to sell and i think maybe around 9 11 or immediately thereafter when you know, the internet became more ubiquitous you started getting better and better phones i think what the first iphone came out in what, like 2006 or something like that mm -hmm. so when you started getting more and more of this and more and more people are out there Unfortunately, our like what was going on in HR departments, and it wasn't always necessarily the reporters. It was like the administration, the HR departments. It was those kind of Usually. things that were yeah, yeah, they were getting infected first, <clears throat> and that's what caused 
we didn't have we didn't have a sensible pushback to the crazy. I mean, you always had things like the National Enquirer, like that was never not there. <laughs> you know, like, but I mean, there was like, those are funny. Eh? Yeah, but I mean, that boy. Yeah, but but you had that stuff. But people could rely on you know the New York Times with all the news sure. that's fit to print. But now, like I mean, again, like I said, I. I don't trust the CBC, but you'd mentioned Ian Hanamansing. I trust him. I trust Natasha Fata. I think yeah, she's I like a, Natasha. She's brilliant. But I don't trust the CBC. Just because, you know, before, like, you know, I guess you could go back to like the nineties the, the when someone said, Oh, it's it's on it was on the CBC, so you could kind of trust it. Yeah. But now it's like, okay, that's it, it's no longer there. And you know, like I said, I'd, I'd like to get back to this if we if we can for a few minutes is I don't think people believe what was what the media was saying about Putin to a certain extent. So they didn't even really consider. I, I know this came sort of out of the blue, like, but if you've been paying attention, you knew he was pushing towards it. You knew he was pushing or he was going to push that claim one way or another that he, you know, that that's his land. Like, this is an important story and this is a lot of important stuff and people have lost trust. And I'm like, you know, well, yeah, you know, the, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty well an objective fact, I think, yeah. what you're, you're stating. You're not offering an opinion even. You're simply stating a fact that um, people don't trust, or a lot of people don't trust the media anymore. And then they trust some media and not other. And in the United States, you know, and a lot of this is really about the cultural dyspepsia that Americans are suffering at the moment. Um, you know, the sort of every, there's people who believe everything that they, they, they see on Fox News, and then there's people who believe everything they see on or hear on CNN. Um, you know, so, so there's all that. But the phenomenon is actually not that new. Um, what was hoped was that, you know, with digital technologies, and in fact, it's a good thing, you know, a lot of what, you know, when the blo when blogs first emerged, you know, a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of expertise in a whole bunch of different areas suddenly had a way to communicate directly with their constituencies. You know, you didn't really need the op-ed pages or, 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 you know, whatever. You could talk directly to people who were interested in what you had to say. And that's not a bad thing. Um, but uh, with digital technologies, another, th another good thing I should say, you know, I suppose it's a good thing. It should have been a good thing. The New York Times, for instance, I think it had something like, oh God, what was the number? It was phenomenal. Something like 62 people in its photography department in New York City. And, you know, I mean, if a plane went down on the Hudson River, you'd get everybody down there, right? To you'd organize teams of photographers to get people situated in different places so that they come back with the one great picture to put on page one with two or three inside. Now, you know, you, you could, you know, you barely need a photography department. Everybody's going to take, everybody's got a cell phone camera. They're going to be taking pictures of that plane. Um, so that really, you know, that should free up a lot of resources, uh, corporate resources that you can then devote to doing some really important and serious journalism. Unfortunately, that, that did not happen. Um, and, uh, I want to go back. I'm just going to see if I can look it up here. Um, 
to something. I'm a big fan of George Orwell. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of ridiculous about it. I taught a lecture course on George Orwell at U, you know, University of Victoria. And I used to teach a master's in creative writing at UBC. And it was all about basically, you know, the legacy of journalism that really began with George Orwell. A lot of the, the journalism that was, uh, you know, the great journalism from the 60s to the 90s, literary journalism, long form journalism, the kind of stuff that you'd see in the New Yorker um, and sometimes the Atlantic or even Rolling Stone. That was a tradition that began with George Orwell. And the idea was, you know, we, we used to be called literary journalism. Then it was called literary non-form or pardon me, non, uh, it, you know, it was long form journalism. And then it was called creative writing. And at <laughs> some point along the way, a really weird thing happened. And it was basically, you know, it's not really a novel because I based it on my, my, my personal experiences. Therefore it's memoir. Therefore it's journalism. Well, no, it's not um, because you can't make anything up. That's the, that's the really important thing to remember about all of this. Uh, you can't make stuff up. Uh, I just want to read this little thing to you that is, speaks to what I'm, trying to describe. I'm quoting now. Indifference to objective truth is encouraged by the sealing off of one part of the world from another, which makes it harder and harder to discover what is actually happening. There can often be a genuine doubt about the most enormous events. Probably the truth is discoverable, but the facts will be so dishonestly set forth in almost any newspaper that the ordinary reader can be forgiven either for swallowing lies or failing to form an opinion. The general uncertainty as, as to what is really happening makes it easier to cling to lunatic beliefs. Now, you could write that tomorrow in, on the ideas page of the National Post. That was written in Polemic Magazine in May 1945 uh, by George Orwell in an essay called Notes on Nationalism. Um, so unfortunately, despite all of this technology, we're kind of back where we started. Um, and I think we're back where we started because of this thing that you, partly because of this thing that you described as having, you know, kind of come out of the social sciences and humanities departments, right? And um, the social sciences and humanities, that, that kind of, you know, it was called radical postmodernism, right? Or uh, epistemic relativism. Um, and the interesting thing is it did really become kind of entrenched in the, uh, the, the, in the culture, um, in, in the bourgeois culture, right, which we now say on the left, um, really quite entrenched. And it was a way of understanding the world. Uh, and what it meant was that when Donald Trump came along, when Trumpism came along, the left had no defenses against it. Because he was speaking to working class people, mainly lumpen working class people, but he was also making stuff up as he went along, just making stuff up as he went along. Well, when you, when you come from a weird kind of Frankfurt school Marxist discipline where that's actually what you're supposed to do, how are you going to complain about Donald Trump? Yeah, but that's, that's just it. I mean, like, okay. There, there's one article that sticks out in my head from the New York Times because it's just so insane. 
So there's a high school trip going somewhere in the Bronx. I, I don't I don't know where it was, but two South Asian boys beat up four black girls. And one of them pissed on the New York Times said that it was a problem with whiteness. Yeah. What do you have to def- like when you're printing garbage like that? What do you have to defend? Like you said, like we, we don't have all our institutions are getting like you know, at least the Canada Civil Liberties Associ- like, Association stood up against the emergency yeah, I'm measures. I'm seeing CCLA for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the ACLU is not what the, the, it's not the same ACLU that defended the Nazis no. in Skokie, Illinois. It, it's, it's, like when the CDC put out recommendations that vaccines be given out by race. Yeah. Okay, like, or, okay, take our government. Our government, and so I guess all our federal medical institutions and whatever, like they're denying biology at a certain level with Bill C4. Our medical and federal medical institutions are denying biology. Why should I trust them out a vaccine? Now, uh, I've got, you know, three shots. I'm, you know, like I'm not, you know, if people ask me, I say take it. But why should, if they're denying basic biology, why should I trust them? What a vaccine! Like, I mean, it, yeah, that, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. I think a lot of people that that's what's that's what's done it. I think that's the you know what's really flipped the switch for a lot of people. You know, over the years, after a while, the last you know through the pandemic, you told one thing, you know. It's, don't, oh no, you don't want to be wearing a mask because then that'll be giving people a false sense of security. And uh, you know what social distancing is the thing. Oh no, we should wear a mask because uh, you know we've changed our minds or whatever. And we have to be fair. The science evolves, and our understanding of this stuff evolves. Yeah. And I also think we here's another thing I think we forget about that we have to be fair about is that during something like a pandemic, public health authorities have to be extremely careful, assiduously attentive to what is described now as public messaging, right? Unfortunately, that's also kind of propaganda, but it's necessary. You've got to be really, really on point. You've got to anticipate the way people are going to respond. So, you know, it, it entered into a completely different kind of realm of public, you know, government communication and the science did evolve. But as you say, um, you know, you had you had people saying, "Well, you get the vaccine and that's it. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. You get the vaccine, and nobody you'll never get sick, and you won't be able to pass it on to anybody else. Boom, you're done. You're fixed." And so, well, actually, you need two shots. Okay, fine. I get that. Oh, well, that you actually need three. And then was well, gosh, it looks like hmm, it's you know it's kind of transmissible still if you've had three shots. And then you just go, well, actually, most of us have had it now, and. <laughs> You yeah, probably didn't but, even notice. Right? But that's but that's what I mean. Like it's if okay with the vaccine. Now I believe it's five years that vaccines have to be tested before they come out. And I know everyone's going to say, "Well, this is mRNA. It's due technology, whatever." But if they at least come out and said, "Okay, yeah, you know, normally we do five years. This is a pandemic. This is a special situation. We're coming out with this." And whenever, like, like I remember when I they were first started giving it out. Some women complained about issues with uh, menstruation. Oh, no, no, you're, you're nuts. You're crazy. Now some stuff has come out that, okay, there might be some issues with, with, you know, with menstruation with women due to the vaccine. 
I, I, I'm not trying to like, I don't know all the details and I don't, don't want to see it, but there might be some issues now all of a sudden, but the first people to talk about it, like, I think if they'd actually been completely honest about you know, yeah. get in the front of it, the, the limits of their certainty and knowledge, yeah. been- if they'd gotten in front of it, instead of trying to backpedal and, you know, Oh, it's like Rachel Maddow. It's going to cure you. It's you. Once you take the vaccine, you're fine. Blah, 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 blah. I remember that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then, Boom, it's stuck. Yeah. Now it's like, you know, now they're trying to tell you you have to get the booster. And, you know, first, oh, natural immunity was nothing. Now the CDC just, re- you know, unfortunately, I'm getting more information from the States than I am from Canada. Maybe I'm not paying enough attention here. But, you know, the CDC just released that. Well, okay. Oh, you know what? Natural immunity does give you some protection that the vaccine doesn't. And it's like, if they'd been more honest about what they didn't know and said to, to the best of our ability that we think this thing will work, I, I, I think we would have been a lot better off. And I think they would have garnered a lot more trust, especially over the last two years. Cause I mean, we just got through this emergency. Now we have another emergency going on and people have a lot less trust now than they did at the start of the pandemic. It's, it's really, really sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing too, is that, uh, you know, um, we're talking about public governments in a democracy and so you're talking about politicians. And if you don't have responsible politicians who are, you know, whose discourse, whose rhetoric is at least grounded in fact, and that's what matters, all kinds of bad things can happen. And, and what you saw in the United States was, as you say, you know, you on the left and the CNN community, we'll call it, because I don't even know if they're left wing. I don't even know. They, you know, it's, they don't really have any connection to the historic mission of the left. They might speak a language that sort of is Marxist inflection, but they have no class consciousness at all. Probably the reason they don't is because they're, they're from the bourgeoisie and not the proletariat. They don't want to admit it. Who knows? The CNN community kind of, you know, I started to notice how, and I think a lot of people did. In fact, there's been a lot of discussion. There was a lot of discussion about this in the United States and some of the more intelligent newspapers. How wearing a mask became kind of a badge. You know, like I'm a Democrat. And, 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 and so, you know, you do that. And guys who are Republicans start to think, well, I'm not a Democrat. And why are they making me wear a mask? And, and then you had Trump, who totally politicized it. And basically, you know, after trying to say, well, I'm the guy and I beat it and I brought in the vaccines, I did all this stuff, kind of, you know, did a 180 and and uh, was kind of dissing everything, you know, was going after Fauci like he was Mephistopheles or something like that. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And the tragedy of that in the United States is that you look at all the red states, the Republican states, and they're almost, all, you know, the mortality rates are almost through the roof. Uh, people, people are dying because of the politicization of this. And in Canada, it kind of happened the other way around, almost. And it started uh, in the uh, last federal election campaign. Um, the, what's his name? Anthony Lightbound, you know, the politician from Quebec, the liberal kind of broke yeah. Really an amazing presentation he gave that day. Really articulate, you know, uh, it, 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 it lasted about an hour and you could just hang on every word. He was so clear, he's a real smart guy. So clear, so articulate. And he said, you know, we should never have done this. We started to politicize this thing uh, in the, you know, in the last election in key writings. And of course it becomes national messaging. 
And so I think a lot of people in Canada simply said, look, if Trudeau is telling me, A, I'm a racist, B, I'm a misogynist, C, I'm a white supremacist, and D, I am a woman, if I decide to say that I'm a woman, then maybe what he's saying about vaccines is bullshit too. You know, I think a lot of that went on. Yeah, and um, and and I, you know, I don't know how you walk back that stuff. You mentioned earlier, you know, uh, about how how he treated the, you know, or his approach, his, his, the way he talked about the truckers when they got to Ottawa. Mm. I don't think he should have met with them. By the way, I mean not the people who. I think the media elevated certain people to the, the status of leaders. I don't know if they were leaders at all. They were certainly instigators, and when the or you know among the instigators. And then when the media started referring to them as leaders and getting a little bit, you know, over-caffeinated in the way they describe these people, then suddenly everybody thinks they're leaders. I don't think Trudeau should have met with those people at all. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I, I, I actually had conversations with um, Kevin Vickers about this. People may remember Kevin Vickers. He was the Sergeant at Arms in Parliament. Yeah. Um, that day that uh, Nathan Cirillo was 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 killed at uh, the War Memorial, burst into the Parliament buildings with a gun. Kevin took him out, and I love Kev. He's one of my he's one of my tribesmen. You know, he's Miramichi Irish. Ended up, uh, you know, appointed appointed ambassador to Ireland. I hung out with him in Dublin for a while over there. Guy, I mean, as a Mountie, you know, he diffused so many tensions. Uh, uh, at Burnt Church, you know, the lobster Aboriginal fishing rights stuff, not sending in the riot cops, not getting, you know, 1,800 OPP people to come into Ottawa like uh, that doofus police chief was proposing. One cop, unarmed, after dark, by himself, goes, and s- goes to the, the Indian blockade and talks to the guys about the difficult situation that they were putting him in. And the, you know, the rising tensions in the community and everything. And uh, at the end of the conversation, they, they all said the rosary together. And the next day it was, you know, it was fixed. Um, he would have been a great mediator, I think, to bring in between the, not just the prime minister's office, but I think, you know, kind of an all-party leaders caucus. You know, just... Not even a caucus, you just have a goddamn meeting, sit around the table and say, look, we got a problem here. How about, you know, we get Kevin to go talk to the people outside. He can bring some people in. We'll talk to them. Have a conversation for God's sake, right? But instead, Trudeau doubled down on this whole thing, you know? They're all a bunch of racist, Nazi, misogynist, white supremacists, and, uh, and, uh, by the way, you know, wear a mask and get vaxxed. And uh, yeah, it just all went sideways. And, and I think this is the difficulty w- that will arise when you import American culture wars into Canada. And then you elect a prime minister who is a four-star culture war general. You know, that's, that's things are going to get weird. Yeah. That's, I mean, like the, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but I've, I've said this, like, you know, I've heard it from like the last two elections. I've heard it from the liberals and some from the NDP, but it's just, Oh, that's American politics or that's Trump politics. I'm like, 
you know, <laughs> excuse me <laughs> exactly i'm like you know but i'm just like but the, you brought in okay the, the new ministry of diversity inclusion and youth that has you know an anti that's supposed to have an anti-racist secretariat if you look listen to read their language it's the language of critical race theory i'm like you brought in american jurisprudence yeah. into canadian like into canadian government now and you're talking about bringing in American politics. Like, I mean, I, I, I wish someone would point that out to him. I wish someone in parliament had actually read some of this stuff so they could point it out to him. <laughs> like it's yeah, a lot of this is symbolism too. And symbols actually matter in society. Like one of the things that I, I found fascinating was just how many Canadian flags were there in Ottawa during the protests, eh? What I, what, sorry, what I found I striking was the, the Canadian and the Quebec flag side by side in yes, Ottawa. Quite that was a, you never see that. It was great. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we should not forget this. We should not allow it to go down the memory. The last year, the prime minister of this country, unilaterally, he didn't consult with any indigenous people about this, lowered the flag on Parliament Hill, ordered the flags lowered on all federal buildings across the country, ordered the flags lowered on every single embassy around the world for months on end and said, basically, I'm ashamed to be a Canadian. Yeah. Well, you know what? That actually doesn't go down very well with a lot of people. Nope. It just doesn't. I mean, but, yeah. But also, again, there's the hypocrisy there too. Like he's doing all this because of the residential schools, but he's suing the survivors of the residential schools for the, yeah. you know, for, for the amount they want. I mean, like that's ridiculous too. Look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too too much longer, but thank you very much. It was great talking to you. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, uh, where they well, can just do, you know, the easiest thing is Terry Glavin Substack, and then you'll find my newsletter. Uh, it's called The Real Story, and then you'll subscribe and you'll pay for a subscription, five dollars a month. Come on, it's a five Canadian or U.S. An absolute bargain. It's Canadian. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, you'll get the inside scoop. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's the, I, as I say, you know, I mean, I'm not bailing from, you know, legacy journalism and my purchase at the National Post and the Ottawa Citizen Claims. It's just that if you cover international human rights and foreign policy and culture, uh, and we're a multicultural country, you know, a fifth of us are comfortable, right? So we're interested in what happens in the old country. And we're a trading nation. And we make a big deal about our multiculturalism. There's just so much going on right now. I needed more room. And so, and there's a lot of stuff that goes over people's heads and goes under the radar. Um, and so that's why I've launched this newsletter. And I think it's going to be a useful public service. Well, great. Well, I'll put the links to all that in the description. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on. It was really good talking to you. Thanks for having me, buddy. And thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>